Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds for this special series to discuss women in STEM. Can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? My name is Monica Deuce. I am an assistant professor in LSA in the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. And I've been there since January 2015. And I had a research lab that studies the effects of the dietary environment on the brain. And I also teach Bio305 genetics, which is really a big class for 100 students, and also a smaller class that's um, neuroepigenetics, which is MCDB for um, 58. Can you tell me a little bit more about your lab and the types of studies that are conducted there? My lab is interesting in understanding why it is that when we are around food that tastes really good, such as desserts or french fries, I love pizza and cupcakes, our, our eating behavior changes. Why is that in the presence of some foods, we tend to eat more than you know we're supposed to, I'm using air quotes. And so we are really interested in trying to understand what these foods do to the brain to change it. And sometimes um, the way they change it is in persistent way, in ways that cannot be reversed uh, easily. And so we specifically study the effects of a high sugar diet on feeding behavior, but also on other types of brain things such as uh, sleeping or learning a memory. And uh, we look at both uh, the physiological levels, how does dietary components of processed food change different brain processes, but we also look at it from a molecular level to try to really get to the underlying causes of it. Can you elaborate a little bit on why it's important to study the effect of sugar on the brain and who needs to hear about and understand these findings? We can probably all relate to um, our eating or ingestive behavior changing when um, we are in different environments. We just had the winter holidays. There's like, in, I'm from Italy and we celebrate carnival. There, is a, there are a lot of really tasty treats. And so I think this is relevant to everybody essentially that eats. Um, now, why do we study sugar? Uh, we study sugar because it's one of the main components of processed food. And unlike um, other components of processed foods like salt and fat, it's very hard to figure out how much sugar you're using your food. Oh, it was until very recently because sugar in the ingredient label comes in 60, maybe even more different names. It has glucose, fructose, maltodextrin, high fructose corn syrup, agave syrup. So it's very hard to identify what things in there are sugars. And unlike other components of your food, it doesn't have a maximum recommended daily dose. So if you look at the back, it doesn't have a percentage. The fat have a percentage, the saturated fat has the sodium, the protein, but uh, sugar doesn't. And so uh, it's one component that can get into your diet 
in sort of hidden or sneaky ways. So most of us consume more sugar that's being recommended, but it's not on food labels, but it would be hard to know because it's used as a component of processed food to preserve the food, to also um, enhance its flavor, because there are a lot of other additives in there. And so um, most of us consume more sugar, not because we have cake for breakfast, but because we might consume foods that we don't know have sugar. And um, sugar, the levels of sugar have been connected to a lot of different uh, conditions, uh, not just weight gain, but also um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and weight gain that is associated with a diet that has a lot of calories can lead to obesity, which is also correlated with a lot of other diseases. So I think this is sort of lot relevant to you know, everybody. Um, and the last thing I think we, we often, at least that's what we study in my lab, we often think of eating as something we do uh, out of our free will that we choose what to eat. But instead, our research and that of others shows that there is a lot of uh, biochemistry that goes underneath and that can alter your brain processes. And uh, a lot of times it's not just that, but we don't really have a choice of what sort of foods we can buy. In Ann Arbor, we have a lot of really fresh food. We have many farmer's markets, but there are regions that have our food deserts. And so uh, people living in those regions or areas of, of different cities don't have access to food. So it's not really a matter of food choice. And throughout your breadth of work, have there been any particular studies and findings that you'd like to highlight to explain the significance of this research? I have been really excited about what my students and postdocs and technicians and I would be whole my lab and I guess the undergrads too, we have been studying over the last five years here in Michigan. We um, really stumble on this line of research because we were doing some control experiments to try to understand how diet changed the ability of animals to uh, perceive the caloric amount of food. And in order to do those experiments, we had to test the ability of animals to taste, how do they perceive difference properties such as sweetness. And when we tested that pretty early on, we found that the animals, and we studied fruit flies that were in a high sugar diet, couldn't taste uh, sweet as well as those that were on their control healthy diet. And so we were really puzzled by this. And I remember even like sending a message to my students and saying, whoa, this looks really crazy. And um, then the next few days after that, I spoke to one of my colleagues and I, I told her, um, that's Carrie Ferrario from Pharmacology, and I told her, uh, we found this really weird result, and I don't know if it's a weird things that's happening in flies, and she's like, oh, no, no, I think I saw some papers that it's also, you know, there's some papers in mammals and, and in humans, and so I started digging into that, that area, and in fact, it turns out that um, there have been studies where the levels of salt, sugar, and uh, fat in the food have been linked to different ability to perceive um, these components in the food. But there are a lot of questions that we didn't know. For example, was it because when you eat this food, you tend to gain weight? So was it because this animal or this humans were um, have higher body mass index? Or was it really the diet directly that changed their taste buds? 
was it even happening in the taste buds or was it something that's happening in the brain? And what was the effect of these changes in taste sensation on the overall feeding behavior and food intake? And so in the last five years, we really tackled all these different uh, aspects. Um, and when I mean we, it's mostly uh, actually my students, uh, Christina May and Anumit Vaziri. Christina graduated and Anumit will graduate next year, who um, found that indeed it's diet that's changing the taste buds of the fly directly. It's changing in such a way that um, the, the neurons, the taste buds of the fly don't respond as well as the sugar. And these causes the animal to eat more because they cannot use things like sweetness to essentially regulate the size of their meals properly. And so they eat more. And Anomid found that this process is also persistent. And so if she moves the animals back to a regular diet, even after three weeks, the animals don't regain their ability to taste. And so uh, this is really interesting because you can think of it almost as a form of uh, food trauma where the environment in which you were exposed affects your future behavior, your future ingestive behavior. So I want to change paths a little bit to talk about something else that you do in your work. You're the host of your own podcast, How to Science. What led you to launch a podcast and what types of stories do you share? I really wanted to create a podcast to peel what I call the fourth wall of academia. The idea of like, who are scientists? What makes us tick? What do we look like? And uh, what do we do, what we do? And what is it like to be a science scientist? And, you know, I think this is probably even more relevant today with the current pandemic. Now the podcast took I hate us because I am on pre-tenure. And so I had to focus on, on my uh, scholarship and also Liz left for another position, uh, but we hope to start it again soon. But the role of the podcast was really to try to understand um, what are the inner lives of scientists and who is the, who are the people behind uh, the pipette or the beaker or the microscope. Can you explain why you feel that public engagement and community outreach in general is important? What benefits do you see to both the community and the faculty? I want to answer these questions from two different aspects. I think an aspect that's maybe more obvious in the sense that it's important for the public to um, learn about science. It's important for us to make science open and accessible. Uh, a lot of the science that's happening is publicly funded. So it's taxpayer money that gives us the privilege and the opportunity to um, seek knowledge and um, increase our understanding of the world. In the other way, I think it's also a work for the soul. And so I think that I think that a lot of scientists uh, do outreach, science communication, public engagement, because we want to share how we feel about science. I don't know any scientist who does science just to publish papers or to get grants or to go through sometimes the tedious and many times hard work um, of troubleshooting and rejection and rewriting and editing and long hours. I think most of us do it because we really love learning and we're really curious people and we love to tell stories. And science 
science communication is a way to tell people's story about science, but it also is a way to breach the daily piece of scientific research, which is detailed and rigorous and very, very slow to, to still keep it connected to the overall scientific enterprise and the research for knowledge, which is really broad and it's very encompassing. It has like this big implications that sometimes you might forget about when you're in the lab and trying to troubleshoot your imaging preparation or your Western blot or um, your, your synthesis or something. And so I think a lot of us do public engagement because we ought to, not just because we want to. As you know, this podcast is a part of a special mini-series that we're conducting about women in STEM as we celebrate International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Are there any experiences in finding camaraderie in your journey or any challenges you've faced or any significant achievements that you're really proud of that you can share with our audience? I think being a woman in STEM has um, a a very... um, a very unique feeling to me because um, my mom, um, she grew up in um, a lot of poverty and she wasn't allowed to finish even high school because her family was so poor and she was a woman. So all the resources had to be uh, saved for her brothers. And um, when I left when I left Italy to come to the US, that was uh, very real in my mind. It's it's hard to live your country, at least it was for me and my family to go to another place, which you know can be culturally diverse and uh, try to adapt to the new norms and rules and climate sometimes. It's really cold in Michigan. Um, and so it 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 was it was weird being um, in science and not feeling uh, feeling like I didn't belong because the places where I trained they didn't have a lot of women uh, both Cold Spring Harbor and even my floor the neuroscience floor in NYU didn't have any woman PI um, and. Now other floors did, like the genetics floor had a lot of, um, had some women PI. And so the mentorship and the guidance of uh, the scientist, uh, this woman scientist was uh, really, really important to me. And one of the reasons I decided to come to Michigan as a professor was um, because my department had uh, more junior women and had a woman chair, um, Dr. Pamela Raymond, who um, has done so much to really uh, promote the cause and, and try to um, bring equity in, uh, and gender balance uh, in academia, at least in Michigan. And so because there wasn't representation, I think I really felt I didn't belong, but I was also reminded I didn't belong many times. Once at Cold Spring Harbor, I was wearing some pink shoes and I was teaching and um, I was sent home and I was told that scientists don't wear pink or scientists don't wear makeup. Uh, And it was very, it was very hurtful. And now it's, it's silly, right? Because yeah, pink and makeup are not my, my identity, but, but it, it sent a really clear message that, you know, I had to, I had to look a certain way if I wanted to be taken seriously. And so for a while, I actually got into my brain that I couldn't be as successful in science because I was a woman. And it wasn't until I uh, went to NYU and I met 
women scientists at all level, both the graduate students and postdocs and uh, admin, the scientists that got into administration, so the director of the institutes and um, the PI that really changed my view and made me understand how wrong I was. And so when I opened my lab um, and I made my office, I made my office pink. And when I go to class, I go to class with pink clothes or, you know, I go to class like I, I want to be because I think it's really important to communicate that really um, there is space in science for everybody. And we, we appreciate everybody uniqueness and diversity because they really enrich our environment. And so that was, um, that was uh, kind of a, a really big growth process for me. And it wouldn't have been possible through without the sisterhood. I call it the sisterhood of all the really amazing women that were there to support and help me get back on my feet and encourage me and tell me to keep going on. And, you know, even today, sometimes it, I have I have to call people and some of my women mentors um, to try to make sense of the word. One of the the time that it really um, that I really understood that in a very obvious way was a few years ago. Uh, I think it was the second time um, that I taught my small class. Um, it's an upper level, like I said before, 400 level neuroscience course. It's 30 people, and 27 of them are women, and um, it was it was quite an amazing feeling to see that, you know, from where I started to where I was now, and and I. Yeah, it's it's really amazing, and I and but we have so much more work to do, right? So, you know, we just have to keep going. What do you feel are some of the best ways to encourage and recruit more women and girls to pursue work in STEM-related fields? It's really important to make it a welcoming environment, um, and make it a transparent environment, and also a place where we value the individual and we also value the growth of the individual. So I'm not sure why it's that way, but so many times in science, we, uh, we give this really, um, I don't know, we evaluate people based on like excellent, average, below average. And I, I think that mindset is, um, is not really welcoming to um, really anybody, but especially to those who might feel that they don't belong in the first place. And so I think setting up our training in STEM, not as a gauntlet that we have to survive, but as uh, something that is based on growth and proficiency and where the um, things that we have to achieve and learn are really obvious is, uh, I believe that's a key a key thing to be able to recruit more people to STEM. Can you share any words of wisdom for those who are just beginning on their journeys into STEM programs? I'm not sure if it's a word of wisdom, but if I could go back and uh, 20 years ago when I started my journey, I would probably tell myself that it's okay to be myself. And so I would tell the younger students that are getting into STEM to be themselves, that we want their uniqueness and 
we appreciate them and not to try to change who they are to fit some idea that it doesn't exist. It's only a mirage. Well, thank you, Monica, so much for joining us on Michigan Minds. I look forward to the next time we talk. Okay, thank you so much again. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.